Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. Our ability to educate students in science is essential to ensuring we not only can continue to build future generations that can solve the world's greatest problems from climate change to healthcare, but also ensures we have a citizenry proficient in critical thinking. Our guest today, Lindsay Trump, has founded a company that seeks to better educate students in the sciences by enabling them to become scientists in an immersive learning game. What she has built is complex, an expansive digital world that allows for deep science learning. Her path has not been easy, but innovation never is. All right, Lindsay Trump is our first guest, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. Hi, Lindsay. It's really good to talk Hi. to you. It's great to be here chatting with you, Jim. So you started Immerse Games a few years ago, and yeah. today Immerse Games is one of the few educational technology companies building an immersive game-based educational product. On your website, you talk about your inspiration being a gamer and seeing the potential for learning, but what really drove you to decide to start a company in this space? Yeah, I um, definitely wasn't one of the people that was planning to be an entrepreneur, you know, and wanting to, to really go into that space. But I think a lot of the best things come out of people who are singularly focused on a mission or something that they want to bring to life and create in the world. And so, so yes, I talk about my inspiration being playing World of Warcraft one day and realizing how much I learned. And I think a lot of people actually, especially that are in the gaming and educational game space have had a similar experience but I was then went into a PhD program in education. And so as I went through my coursework there, I kind of accidentally created a mental model for, you know, what a really great educational gaming experience could be like, because really uh, certain types and genres of games, especially pull from a lot of the best practices in learning, especially if you think about communities and communities learning together. So in World of Warcraft, for instance, over time, the community has gotten fantastically better. You know, when I first started playing, it was these very simple boss fights, and now they're these giant choreographed, you know, experiences, and everyone has really learned and shared in a very interesting way. And when you're on, like, the cutting edge of that, you're working with a large group of people collaborating, figuring out strategies, we are setting up macros, you know, doing all sorts of things, iterating through the problem-solving process, and it was so exciting. And and when I looked at the educational game space, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you don't really see that happening as much. And so that's what really drove me to want to make this. I, I started looking into the game space to do my dissertation on it. And uh, so I started digging into what was out there and reaching out to people, trying to get data <laughs> to, to do my dissertation on. And I found a few cool things. And actually, some of them honestly told me nobody's using it right now. I have no data for you or, you know, wow. or other issues. And so I was really disappointed, but decided I wanted to make it. And I think the naivety of not realizing how hard that was, was also a benefit at the time, since I had right. never built anything like this. But I uh, ended up kind of starting to recruit co-founders and working on it. Awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, that definitely can be a benefit. Uh, <laughs> not knowing quite what the challenges are ahead, it allows you to make that leap sometimes. Yes. Right? All right. So, so that's awesome. So 
what I'd love to hear a little bit more about is why this is such an important innovation in education. You know I'm already a big fan of educational games. I ran a conference for a couple of years just because I believe in the space so much and wanted to see it continue to grow. But can you just give your viewpoint of why, why this matters for education and why it makes an impact? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I have a lot of different perspectives of that from various angles. Uh, and if the reasons I started working on Title Online specifically when I looked at what was available for educational games was that one, I saw that most of what was available were pretty shallow experiences. And I'm not saying there isn't a role for like review games and kind of pop up multiple choice things, you know, there can be a role for that, but it's not the promise of what we could do if we really want people to develop skills and learn and be empowered in a really interesting way that can change lives, right? We want them to have these really deep experiences. And for the most part, that wasn't really happening in the educational game field. Uh, the other thing, though, was that educational games, if I do want to use them, and if my aim is what I just said, these kind of powered empowering experiences. When I look at it, what's out there, they tend to be these little fragmented pieces of products that you find and can use for a little while. So I wanted to create a single game that teachers could use or individuals could use over time. You know, normally if I maybe find a physics game and I'm, you know, inspired by that and I finish it, I don't know what to do next. I, I can't right. really increase my learning. But if we can make a single platform and keep growing that that has the levels built in it, an individual can pursue their next learning on their own, or a teacher can, you know, know the next content as well and not use one game once and then kind of fall off because they can't find it and implement a new thing all the time. And so those were kind of the two major issues that I saw that I wanted to fix by making our product title online and uh, go out into there. So we have a content authoring tool that we can use to, to keep building content. And right now we started in science. Uh, that's a really important area, obviously, but our long-term goal would be to grow to a lot of other areas as well and make it, I think, Think of it more as an experiential learning platform so that people can have these direct experiences. I um, mean, we just kind of happen to use a game to pull that off is how I tell right. educators about it. Um, so there's a lot of other ways, as I said, I could talk about kind of why I thought this was so important, but uh, that's kind of the education side of things. Yeah, yeah. So, so just to pull that apart a little bit more. So, yeah, sure. so this is an immersive learning experience where where the students are getting to experience science by participating. Yeah. How can you speak more just for people who aren't as familiar? You're right. With, I should definitely. With, yeah. About that, what that means and a little bit more about the difference. You know, you talked about like quiz based game products, things like that. What, what is the real differentiator there? Because I think those still often get grouped together when they're so, so different. Um, and I think yeah, absolutely great to share that more. Yes, yeah, so I think the easiest way for me to explain this is generally actually just to give some examples because it's otherwise it just sounds like I'm piecing together buzzwords. <laughs> so okay. um, let me say it in a way that people will hopefully be able to visualize. So with, with our game, the way we've approached it is that, you know, a student creates a character that represents them and all of that great game stuff and they can win rewards and, and stuff. So we have that kind of engagement layer. But, you know, that's not where the, the secret sauce really is. Um, they then go in the game and they get to um, go do various storylines and quests and engage in simulations where they're solving these kind of authentic problems or figuring things out. So 
two examples I'll just grab from. In one example, to learn about genetics, um, a councilwoman comes to them and says, we're going to have a food shortage of you know, 40%. We made it a little exaggerated for middle school, you know. Uh, we, we need some, some help here. Uh, there's a botanist. Why don't you go work with them? And so they go with a botanist, and they actually learn about Punnett squares to try to predict what they can crossbreed in order to increase food yield of a crop with a botanist. And they also run experiments on food and water levels, and they're collecting evidence, and they actually build arguments about kind of what they should do throughout, make recommendations to the botanist, and at the end actually go back and, and present it all to the councilwoman in an argument builder mechanic we have so that the councilwoman is like, okay, great. You know, I understand. We're funding this. We're really excited. Yay, you hit your engineering goals. You know, we have enough food now. Um, and another example to learn about uh, climate change, they go into a coral reef that has a bleaching problem. And um, so they collect samples, they actually look at what coral bleaching is, they run experiments, they see that it's tied to increasing ocean temperatures. And then they also look at, you know, data on both on a global scale of what's correlated with increasing ocean temperatures. And we have run experiments where they release greenhouse gases and they can see the heat waves bouncing off them and getting trapped and things like that. And so they go through this whole series, building up their knowledge in order to make arguments about what's going on there. That's why I say I just really have to describe it because if I just say, oh, they collect evidence to show things. So um, right. to, to, to yes, part of your amazing. core question, thank you. So to part of your core question, you know, Games can be designed in a few different ways for education and what a lot of people have done because it is far easier and faster to build and I do not uh, hold this against them after especially realizing that over the last few years is more quiz games where it's kind of pop up multiple choice questions. There might be an extra game attached to it um, that you do but you're not actually doing the type of things I described where you're having this experience where you're developing skills where what you do in the game is in itself the learning and we know from the research that, that is the most effective way to do an educational game and to help people learn. And so that's kind of if you think about a good educational game, the, what you do should be the learning. And that's why we really start thinking of this as experiential learning and setting up a way for you to go out and do field work in a video game and do real science and, and more than a scientist could even do because, you know, we can have you turn into a little robot ant and go explore an ant colony and stuff like that. So we can take it to some pretty awesome extremes. Okay, that's that's great. That I think that helps <laughs> clarify it a lot. And so amazing that you've created something where students can have these experiences. I love that. So one area I'd also really be curious to talk about is the impact of COVID-19. It has been this huge and rapid shift to remote learning. How how has that yes. impacted you and your business? Yeah. So, you know, we had a huge increase in signups in spring about 25 times more than our normal kind of just inbound teacher signups. Um, but, you know, a lot of people weren't able to use it because it was overwhelming. Teachers were kind of in a panic and going out there. Uh, particularly for our business, we didn't have a version of the game in the browser yet, and people needed to install it, and that was really difficult while they were, you know, tech teams were moving to remote learning and trying to solve a thousand problems. And so uh, we actually have our first browser version. We're working on our, our better one right now that I'm really excited about to make it a lot more accessible. And so there's a lot of extra need, but also teachers are super overwhelmed, <laughs> you know? So it's been kind of a mixed bag for us on the business side there um, from a lot of interest and teachers wanting to use it, but their administrators are so stressed, they don't want to ask them if they can use it for a couple of weeks and things like that. So what we're seeing right now is that uh, school systems are starting to kind of 
get balanced, you know, get things going, kind of get past survival mode and into how do we make learning better mode, which means that, you know, they can start layering on things like that, uh, like us. So we're really excited. It kind of just pushed back the like implementation cycle a, a couple months where people normally get in the summer decide on things, but they were really swamped. And so we do expect it to really accelerate our, our adoption and the need this year because science teachers can't do a lot right now of hands-on experiences. Like in many cases, they can't even really do labs. They're just demoing labs in front of the classroom because normally you share materials for labs. They don't have, you know, something for every kid and you go into small groups or they're not in person. And so the kind of inability to do a lot of hands-on is really tough in education right now and something we can help with um, as soon as, you know, people are able to, to think beyond like, okay, am I delivering an education at a bare minimum, which has been a challenge in and of itself for people so far this year. So probably you'll see more of the impact with adoption over time as, as things get settled. Yeah, even some of our customers we had last year um, needed to wait until you know, late September to really engage these discussions because they were just trying to get school going and there were a thousand problems to solve. So it's um, it's always more complicated than you think in education and all the problems that are having to, to tackle when you're talking, you know, remote learning and hybrid mix and trying to take in parent voice and opinions about what model they want their kids in. A lot of schools are managing three different models simultaneously, a full remote to partially in-person kids and everything else. So it's, it's a lot to manage. So you've built this really complex product. I mean, this is not, not an easy game that you've created. And I think something that plagues all entrepreneurs is, is coming up with enough resources. But in particular, <laughs> when you're building something complex and more innovative, you need even longer to survive to really get to that yes. place where you can have customers and a product in the market. So given how much time something like this takes to develop and the resources you need, how did you make it all work? How, how have you gotten to where you are today? At this point, I've done nearly every funding mechanism available to a small business or startup owner. So um, because we did start working on this full time actually in 2015. So it's been five years, which is crazy um, to me to think back to. Um, so we've had angel investors. I did a Kickstarter. I've had two SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Grants. One of them hit a phase two that I'm on actively right now. And I can talk about that if you want, you know, what that is um, in a little bit here. And we we did a loan actually as well. Like we have done everything, other grants, accelerators. Yeah, I, I think I've found every type of capital possible to piece together at this point. And so we've, you know, because we've been building a, a pretty big product, we had ended up with a relatively big team, but at low salaries to keep our burn. I'm not going to say low because it's kind of impossible to have a low, low burn if you have a team of 12 or more people, which we've had most of the life of our company working on this, but at least a moderately low burn given that um, so that we're not going through our cash too fast. Um, but then it's still a lot to pull together when you're not, you know, pulling in tons of revenues yet when you're in the R&D phase and doing pilots and it takes time and education, you know, the, the cycles and processes in education are generally more annual <laughs> than, than shorter cycles and experiments that you can do if you're, say, working with consumers. And so that 
that presents challenges as well. So we're in our second year selling to schools right now to give some context on that time. The earlier one was kind of doing an MVP, selling an initial product that was more to consumers on Steam. And then we moved into building this uh, full product that we're selling to schools. We had some grants in there with the SBIR grants. And then we just started selling to schools last school year. And uh, this school year was kind of let's get another salesperson and try to make it not just me doing sales and, and really grow that, but a, a weird, weird to be th- year to be throwing a salesperson on for sure. Can we talk about some of those different yeah. funding mechanisms? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the small business innovation research, their grants, right? Yes. Yeah. What What's that process like? And can you just also introduce what, what those even are and who can access something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So pretty much every federal agency actually runs their own version. A lot of people are only familiar with the NSFs because they do a much better job of marketing them. Um, The NSF being the National Science Foundation, but actually everyone has their own. I think they're supposed to spend like 2% of their annual budgets actually on small business innovation. So that goes towards these grants. The general structure of them is there's a phase one and a phase two. The phase one grant is for basically making a prototype to show that something is feasible and has commercial potential. And so that's often around 200,000 to 250,000, depending on the agency for that initial prototype that you might spend six months to a year on. And then if you do a, you know, do a good job and get evidence uh, there that's successful and convince them that it has commercial potential and is going to work, you can get a phase two that, again, depends on the agency is 800000 to a million dollars over two years or so for a phase two to keep doing it. Um, they are all for research and development, though. You can't use much of that cash on actual commercialization. You have to kind of mm. find funding and do that on your own. But they go into R&D, into research, if you want to find efficacy data, things like that, that it can pay for, which is really, really helpful, especially because, you know, investors don't necessarily want to pay for a lot of upfront R&D for a complicated product that's going to take right. a while to build before you can start selling it. So actually, the NSF, the way they described it to, to me and, and often described it is that they're looking for things that are too risky for investors to fund yet. And so they really prefer getting in before investors will even get involved to help you prove something out um, that you can then go to investors with the evidence you gathered from working with them. Yeah. So something that I think others that are wanting to do something that pushes the boundaries a bit more like you've done, good resource to know about, probably you also said you did crowdsource funding, right? Through like Kickstarter yes. or what was that? Yeah, we ran a Kickstarter like? early on. Yeah, I mean, we did that at this point, you know, five, six years ago. So I'm sure there's more modern sources on it. Mm. I feel like it's gotten a lot more sophisticated since we did that. Um, but yeah, so we, we ran one of those um, for actually just the beta version of our products and gave all sorts of interesting rewards, like getting to, you know, design if you donated like a thousand dollars you got to design your own alien creature with one of our concept artists that would go into the game so it was really interesting people got to you know name characters put a line of random dialogue in for characters all sorts of really fun rewards like that um in the game and so it's made our, our game world really interesting and, and vibrant too, having all those different kind of opinions and perspectives kind of feed into it early on. And um, someone wanted a, a name named Banana Lord and another name Bananas. So we've like made up all sorts of fun lore around all these requests from Kickstarter backers. So uh, that was really great. And especially having kind of an early supportive community um, that way. 
was fantastic. I do know it tends to be hard to run them, especially nowadays, unless it's something that like people are buying for themselves. So, mm. you know, they maybe got it for, for their children or something, but we had a lot of people who were just using it as a way to support us that we really appreciated, you know, oh, early on. Nice. Um, if I were to do that again now, I might go more with the equity crowdfunding side instead of the, mm -hmm. you know, reward side um, to make sure they actually had some stakes in it. But at the time that didn't exist yet. Yeah. And then uh, another, another funding source is 43 North, right? So you, this was funding that moved your company from, from Florida to Buffalo, New York. Um, yes. That's a big change. <laughs> um, a delightful talk? change. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk about that and what that process was like? And Yeah. Part of what I did and kind of the learning process of how to pitch my business and talk about it to people and not use all sorts of really nerdy both gamer and educator lingo all the time was doing a lot of business plan competitions and things like that and pitch competitions early on. Um, I kind of stopped doing those too much a couple of years ago, but we got an outreach email in 2018 from a program called 43 North. And what they do is it's a Governor Cuomo initiative here in New York State. And they invest five million into I think eight startups every year and um, do a giant really snazzy pitch competition essentially uh, about that where you're on a, a stage in front of thousands of people for for the kind of in pitch and everything and, and a really glitzy final event and and stuff so um yeah we went ahead and applied for that and uh came and did that and got a 500,000 investment from new york state and free office space and all sorts of support so we were really excited we knew we didn't want to stay in florida long term because we had a, designed around these new science standards that Florida, among a few states, haven't adopted. So we couldn't really sell in our backyard to, you know, our, our neighbors there in Florida very well. But here in New York State, they're, of course, on those standards. They're generally leaders in education. And so we were able to move here and have those connections and introductions and got a lot of our early adopter customers last year directly from, you know, the local uh, districts and charter schools in this area that 43 North then introduced us to. So oh, that was really great. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. So did we cover it? I mean, I, you mentioned like lots of different <laughs> funding sources. Yeah, I think so. those are the, I think those are the big ones, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I will say that, you know, the, the funding mechanisms that you use do have implications on your business, you know? Um, so if you have investors, they have implications that you're going to, you know, grow it and get them this return and have an exit and things like that. So, you know, I have had friends that I've certainly recommended, like, if all you really need is, you know, $50,000 to get going here with your company, maybe try to find some other, you know, sort of crowdfunding source or creative grants or something like that to pull it together where you don't have those pressures if that's not really what you want. Um, because there's also, you know, a role for a business that you just kind of grow organically without that pressure. Um, you know, I want to build something pretty massive. Uh, so we have, have definitely gone that route and um, that that's kind of baked into the type of business that we're, we're building that we can bring on these investors and things like that, but it won't always be a good fit. That's the type of entrepreneurship I'm hoping that, right. that this show can start encouraging, right? Is it building those businesses that are a little harder to build because I think, cobbling together like what you did have done to get to where you are is hard. It's extra hard. It's Starting hard. any, any yeah. business is hard, but you know, really trying to push the boundaries like you are has extra challenges. You know, it doesn't fit as neatly into 
the, the kind of startup runway tracks that might exist um, yeah. more readily. Though I do hope that there's going to be growing interest. And I've seen some signs in investing in people who are more domain experts, nice. you know, with, yes. with kind of deep knowledge of areas and, and understanding it might be a little slower to get the returns on those capital than, you know, flipping a, a, a simple tool or something, you right. know, or. Okay, great. And then um, this came up briefly, but talent, right? Like that's a huge part of this too. You talk yes. about having this team of, of 12. Um, how, how did you find people to buy into this mission early on, particularly when you were in Florida where there might not have been as big of a community for something like this? Yeah, well, early on, because, you know, at first nobody was even making money, you know, and everything, we really pulled from the local university. We were in Gainesville, so University of Florida is, you know, the, the top public university in the state with uh, fantastic programs of developers and, and digital media and things like that. So we actually just started an internship program very early on, and I got some experience with, with kind of young people out of that. You know, we were too. I was still in my PhD program um, when I first started that, and so we at first just pulled together this um, team that was a bunch of you know volunteers and then as we got funding uh, the kind of best people from that um, ended up becoming our first team members and so um, our first couple years we were like wow pretty much everyone has started as an unpaid intern and then has graduated you know so you know at this point it's a mix of that and then people that you know we've kind of recruited the old-fashioned HR way um, with job listings and things like that and, and finding additional team members to bring them in um, I will say that, you know, a lot of our leadership are people that joined then. One of our, our art lead, for instance, who's fantastic, joined as an unpaid internship with a very basic, you know, portfolio and is has worked her way up <laughs> into being, you know, the head of the art team and everything. So we, we're definitely a team who has a, um, a focus on growing and supporting talent that, you know, when we see people that grow and learn um, quickly. And so you just even though we got a lot of people young, the question was really, can they grow at the rate of the company, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and kind of and, and develop those skills and be really independent learners and thinkers. And so it's it's been great to see, you know, most of the team rise to that occasion over time and, and keep growing. And, you know, sometimes people end up not being a good fit or want to go do something else. And, or, you know, the stress of startups are a little much for them. That's happened a few mm -hmm. times as well and everything. So we stay in touch with most of those people as well still um, in that turnover that does happen. But overall, I think we have, you know, like a 95% retention rate over the last wow, couple of years. So. That's great. That's great. And so, so it sounds like a big key was being close to a university and being open. That to, helped a lot. Yeah. And being open to seeing potential. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're an early stage startup and you're not really competitive on the salary side. And the first couple of years of our business, we were only making 24000 And so people had to leave a lot of potential to go make more money elsewhere on the table in order to stay with our team. And so a lot of it was also the belonging piece of, you know, loving our team and culture and wanting to stay there and, uh, you know, believing that the, the equity will be worth something and what we're building will be worth something. And, and in many cases, I think for our team members valuing the work we're doing more than the extra salary they could have been getting as well. Yeah. So probably being clear on that mission and vision of what you're doing helped a lot with that. Yeah. 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 And, and I will say that, you know, with low salaries, I, I make the same as the rest of my team and, and still do right now. We're still under market. And so our view is that until we have the money to actually be at market, you know, 
the leadership team should not be making more than, you know, your new employee. We're kind of all quote unquote suffering. Not that, you know, it's, it's that painful anymore. Um, we're in the forties now. So I'm like, okay, I can live with this, um, yeah. you know, t- together. And so even on our job listing, I put a new one up yesterday and I, I feel bad when I put out job listings that I can't offer more, but I just put right under the salary in there. Like, Hey, you're going to literally be making as much as a CEO. <laughs> like we're under market. This is what my business can support right now in terms of the amount of cash that we're spending. And so, you know, at one point when we got a, that 43 North investment, everyone got like a 33% raise overnight, you know, type of thing. So um, when we can't afford more, we, we make those steps, which is also nice to be able to do. And yeah, know that we'll take care of people. And that obviously builds trust because that they understand that we're just having the whole group's interest in mind when we make those decisions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So overall, looking back at this journey so far, what would have been your biggest learnings? What would you do differently if you were to go back in time? Honestly, a, a decent amount. <laughs> but um, I, I, I was talking with an entrepreneur friend one time um, about that. And um, it's very hard to fundraise if you're a first time founder. Um, and he said, well, you know, it makes sense because if somebody offered to give you back all the money you've ever raised or spent for your company, but you had to like wipe everything out and start over, would you do it? And I was like, well, of course I would. Cause I'd be able to do it, you know, three times better and faster with everything I've learned. And he's like, exactly. Everybody would. Um, and so I thought that was a, a really, you know, meaningful, quick mental exercise um, that certainly that the process of building a startup is learning about exactly, you know, what you're building, your product market fit, how do you meet that? And so kind of overall, now I know so much and, you know, I know exactly what I would want to build and I could do that from, from scratch very, very quickly at this point. But I guess discounting that because that's what everyone goes through. Um, I actually really should have started selling earlier. Um, to our actual customers, kind of the feedback I got in the industry was, you know, that selling like one piece of content wasn't really worth it because, you know, people wanted more comprehensive content um, for a product and just trying to sell one little piece that wasn't going to be big enough deal sizes to be worth the effort, which I think they're right overall for like a long-term strategy. But when you're a startup, you're just trying to establish product market fit and prove you can sell it. And those, you know, So I waited a bit too long, as some founders will do, I think, to start selling. And we really started selling like with a good effort once we had like three or four modules of content. And a lot of our early customers only bought it for one. (laughs) And I realized, you know, I could have sold this when we only had had one and not waited until we had, you know, a, a full year's content available um, and stuff. So I think in terms of like generalizable knowledge, you know, learnings, that's probably my bigger piece that I really should have put more effort into selling it. You know, I have excuses, of course, we're really busy with the grants and everything else. And and that kind of kept me from putting enough time into that. But um, that's something we should have done differently. Uh, and when you're, you're talking about selling earlier, do you mean into mm-hmm. schools or do you mean toward to the consumer market? Because that you started doing pretty early, right? Yeah, you're right. Into, into schools. Yeah. Um, so we did put, you know, that first MVP up with a small portion of our gameplay on Steam and we sold to consumers pretty early. And, and that was really helpful, both the revenues and getting feedback and, and everything. But it's a completely different business model. It doesn't really generalize to what we're doing now, selling to schools, what product market fit looks like. You know, we, we kind of learned we can make fun educational gameplay, which is an important 
piece of what it requires to get product market fit in this industry, but it is not by any means the whole picture, you know? And so then we worked on building out the title online platform for a couple of years before we really like made a concerted effort to start selling to schools for that. And so that that's what we should have started doing earlier, even if it was, you know, for a dollar a kid, at least we would have had some relationships and some earlier evidence in schools. You know, that's something I realized we didn't really talk about, but that you have this complicated market where your customer is uh, at the district level or the teacher, but your player is the student, the the person yeah. having the experience with your product is the student. So that just adds all kinds of complexity for you. So getting... There are lots of people. Yeah, yeah, everyone needs to be happy. You know, the player has yeah. to like it because if the kids are complaining to the teacher and they don't want to play it, the teacher is not going to want to deal with that. They're going to throw it, but they also have to be getting the learning objectives out for the teacher and having a clear enough tool set and guides for them. And the administrators need to see the value and why they want to do it and get out of them. And, you know, really, we should probably add a little more parent <laughs> catering at some point, but I don't uh, want to get into that the second um, and everything. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of people to make happy when you're working with schools. There's a lot of stakeholders for obvious and very relevant and valid reasons. To kind of wrap up, what what is your vision for what's next? It's so exciting what you've built so far and what what do you see happening next with your with your product? What time scale are you asking about? <laughs> how, about so how about over the next year, but also five years? Okay. So so this year what we're really focusing on is just more adoption and making us work with a broader group of people. So, you know, I think largely our teachers last year were more your early adopters who are using it. And so we're we're really working on the broader group of teachers that aren't just your early adopters who are up to try anything and really making sure that we can establish the best ways to support um, any teacher who wants to use it to actually be effective getting in there quickly. And so we're doing a bunch of things to that, but they're all very specific ed tech nerdy things that I won't get into. Um, the other thing that we're really working on this year is, is getting a lot more data and um, efficacy and evidence um, um, to build out a lot more case studies. We are going to start doing some more work on the social engagement with students. People care about that more with COVID, which is great because previously, you know, teachers didn't really care about our social features. They wanted us to turn off chat and now everyone wants it because kids are frankly lonely um, right now and, and really disengaged in a lot of ways. And so we're going to spend some time upping some of those features and one more thing, sorry, I know there's a lot we're doing the next year, um, in the next year here. We're also having some conversations with directors of diversity, equity, and inclusion departments at uh, different districts as well. And so we're looking to start adding more um, culturally responsive content into the game and really some anti-racist and socially justice-oriented content. So using our science phenomena to give an example, you know, rather than only learning about, you know, coral reef and climate change and these things, we can start pulling from um, seeing how climate change actually disproportionately affects poor communities of color around oh, the wow. world and things like that. So we have some really great, great ideas about how we can start pulling some of these things in that really is important to students and helping them relate to content and realize how important learning STEM skills can be to them and their community's futures. So we're really excited and looking for a few partners right now with districts that will um, kind of advise us and pilot the content over the next year for that as well. So that's all in one year. <laughs> it's going to be a lot, but those are, those are my goals and I'm kind of mapping out exactly how we're going to accomplish that this year. Um, so five years 
is a little more nebulous, obviously, but uh, we'll be growing our content and reaching a broader group of people. Um, right now, we only have you know a third of middle school content, so trying to get that more comprehensive, potentially go a bit more into elementary and high school as well. But within five years, we should start making more of our platform pieces available to partners as well. So we'll start letting other people use our content authoring tools to add content to our game as well in different features that that's going to look like. They can start building and adding their own maps and modules and things like that. So at first we're going to work with so some selected partners, you know, um, educators that want to do it, nonprofit partners, people who want to kind of sponsor content and things like that. But the long-term goal is to make that more freely available. So I don't know that we're going to hit freely available in five years quite yet, but um, we'll at least have some handheld partners that we'll be releasing some content with within five years and starting to, to make that platform piece a reality. And the reason that's really exciting to me is that, as we talked about before with the experiential learning, we want to provide an opportunity for people to be able to learn a very wide range hands-on. And right now, if you want to go look at things like MOOCs, open courses, there's a lot of content available, but it's just videos and lectures and things like that. It's not really these um, experiential learning pieces where you're doing active problem solving and being empowered. And so by opening up to other people, we hope to be able to, you know, exponentially increase our content and make this giant world available to students where they can go learn across pretty much anything long term. That's more the decade goal, though. <laughs> awesome. Very exciting. I'm, I love what you've built and really exciting to continue to follow your progress. So thank you so much thank for you, joining the show today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the show. If you found value in today's episode, we would appreciate your rating on iTunes. Or if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. I'm also available as a business coach. You can learn more about my services at lucentpathways.com. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.